Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. This week, we have two interviews focused on the ongoing January 6th investigation and hearings. Emily Jane Fox and I talked to Daniel Goldman, former federal prosecutor involved in the first Trump impeachment, now a candidate for Congress in New York, to help us analyze the hearings so far, the case against Donald Trump, and where it all might be leading and how we're going to get there. And secondly, Alex Holder, British documentary maker whose movie on Trump and his family, called Unprecedented, that's going to come out this summer, has become a new and surprise source of evidence for the January 6th committee. And we are probably going to be hearing a lot more about it in the coming months. Let's listen to these interviews now. We have the most special guest today, someone uh, who I have been dying to talk to. Joe, I know you've been dying to talk to such a voice of authority here. We are here with Daniel Goldman. Everyone knows him from every cable news show over the last five years. He's a former federal prosecutor who served as counsel for House Democrats during the first Trump impeachment inquiry. He's also a newly announced candidate for New York's 10th congressional district. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. We have 10 million things we want to ask you about. Well, thanks so much for having me, Emily and Joe. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's great to reconnect with you, Emily, after a little while. Um, and I'm excited to... Uh, to get going. Okay. So we have so much to talk about these hearings that we've been watching. And because you have spent time uh, in congressional hearings, leading congressional hearings, your voice is one we desperately want on this. The first thing I want to ask you is, you know, this team that they have assembled, we are witnessing something that I've I've never really seen anything like it. Um, it has been sort of assassin-like in the execution. Uh, you have a dozen former federal prosecutors investigating this. They're reviewing tons of witness testimony, tens of thousands of documents. They even have former television producers on staff. From your experience in an investigation not entirely dissimilar to this and in whatever knowledge you have of this investigation, Take us into the minds and the halls of what goes on in that building as you're crafting something like this, preparing for what we've been witnessing. Sure. You know, I think there's been a steady progression in sort of the last three major congressional investigations that have gotten a lot of public attention. When we did our impeachment investigation in 2019, we were we were really trying to figure out the facts. We didn't know exactly what happened. And we, we ran that investigation like, you know, I would have run any criminal investigation in my 10 years as a prosecutor. So much of what we were trying to do in that case was get as much information out of the administration as we could. And to that point, nine months into the Congress with the Democrats in control, Donald Trump and the White House had pretty much stonewalled Congress uh, from getting anything that that anything significant that uh, the Democrats wanted. So a lot of what we were focused on was really a factual investigation to try to figure out what was going on. And we had closed door depositions. And then we analyzed the depositions. We analyzed uh, the facts and then we went public in public hearings. To, so in a way to distill and pull out the 
hour long or two hours of uh, information gleaned from 10 hour depositions. Um, and so we did try to present the most relevant, probative, persuasive evidence. And we were using the, some of the documents we got and some photos, but we did not have much video uh, of anything. In the second impeachment, they took it to another level. And part of that was obviously there was so much powerful and compelling video from January 6th and the emotions were so raw. But they did an excellent job in that presentation of weaving in so much of the video to make it more powerful. Um, and there frankly really weren't witnesses in that case. It was a sort of quick investigation, really not even investigation, a quick turnaround presentation to the Senate where the impeachment managers were explaining a lot about what they had found. And there really wasn't any, there weren't any witnesses. But the the way that they created the video excerpts and weaved it all together was was really compelling and really powerful. This January 6th committee has combined sort of the best elements of those two investigations and taken it to another level. And I think they have, there are many, there are several members of Congress on the committee who have been, were involved in both impeachments. And the staff, as you mentioned, is, is full of uh, former federal prosecutors who have led this investigation in an incredibly admirable and remarkable way to have a thousand interviews in a year is less than a year is, is mind blowing. I mean, it's four interviews a day, basically, when you really break it down. So the process, I think, of distilling all of that is an incredible lift. And what they have done is they've, they've taken it to the next level of literally making it a documentary presentation of what they have found. And the production quality is remarkable. Um, they obviously made the decision, you know, they, they made the decision to videotape all the depositions, which is much better than what we had because a lot of times we were just simply showing transcripts, which is not nearly as compelling. They have select carefully selected the witnesses and they are asking very narrow and very specific questions of those witnesses. And they're weaving in video of other things and other recordings so that you've got two and a half hours on sort of each topic that is very well produced and very well done to deliver the most powerful story that you can do. And so it's been a, a progression in Congress of, you know, high quality investigators and investigations with for more and more high quality production. And that's why I think that these hearings have been so powerful and so compelling. You, you bring up those witnesses and, and the power of seeing the video. And I think that's totally spot on. And I think part of the power of that is that you are hearing from Trump People, you are hearing from Republicans that this is very, very disturbing behavior. It's in their own voices, in their own words. You're not hearing from Democratic Congress people. Uh, you can't have screaming that this is a partisan witch hunt when his own people, in their own words on camera, are saying that this was despicable behavior. And I, I'm that decision to me was just genius. And I would add that, um, and I think that you would agree, maybe from having watched what happens with the material in the impeachments you were involved with, the lack of political grandstanding by the actual committee members, which is one of the, I felt always was a weak part of hearings in the past, is the panel members use them as a way to kind of like create a big show for themselves. And the committee members have really stepped back and let the story tell itself, Well, which I think has made... It's easier to do that when you don't really have a an obstructionist minority. You know, one of the yeah, things right. that we were dealing with in our hearings is we had Republicans who were defense lawyers for Donald Trump, and they got equal time. And so you couldn't produce something like this 
in an ordinary congressional investigation where you have, in this case, Republican Congress people who are trying to distract and obstruct and you have to go back and forth with five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is, but you have to give equal time. This committee, because it is bipartisan, but everybody is in sync and working together, there's no back and forth. They're able to just say, okay, this is what we're doing for two and a half hours and we've got a two and a half hour presentation. I think part of the reason that it's so powerful is it's not interrupted and it doesn't have distraction and grandstanding and arguments. Uh, and so that's a huge advantage for the committee. And frankly, it was a huge blunder by Kevin McCarthy to not put any Republicans, uh, not select any of his own Republicans to put on the committee. Um, and it let, left them of open to being able to do this, which you can't do in an ordinary congressional hearing. Well, you're just starting to hear uh, reporting about Kevin McCarthy perhaps regretting that decision and certainly President Trump saying himself that this was a huge mistake to allow that to happen. One of the, the things I want to ask you about what, what you are finding so compelling in the evidence, if there are certain facts that are sticking out to you, but there's one in particular that really stuck out to me. And I don't know if it's because it felt so OG Trumpy in its grift, but they laid out the money raise so clearly to me, the stop the steal fundraising that they did they laid it out in a way that made it so clear that everyone around them was on the take for this. I'll just run you through the numbers here. A million dollars for a charitable foundation run by Mark Meadows, a million dollars to a political group run by several of his former staff members, including Stephen Miller, more than $200,000 to Trump Hotels, $5 million to an organization that helped start the Capitol riot. Kimberly Guilfoyle was paid $60,000 to speak for less than three minutes at the event. Did this stick out to you? It just, it felt like Trump University, Trump Foundation tactics to me. I don't know if this, if this raised flags for you, if it felt like a moment for you or if there are other things that jump out to you. And prosecutable. Yes, uh, both. I mean, it it was shocking, but not surprising. And it was so consistent and in keeping with everything we know about Donald Trump and the people that he surrounds himself with. And it's disgusting and it's gross because what he's doing is it's not as if he is bilking foreign investors or wealthy, you know, wealthy condo owners or whatever, you know, whatever some of the other accusations have been in the past. He is literally stealing from his own supporters many of whom are not wealthy. And it brings me back to some of the securities fraud cases I charged when I was in the Southern District of New York, where you would have these boiler rooms of people calling often vulnerable elderly people and getting them to invest in a completely sham investment that didn't exist. And I remember, and it was it was heartbreaking because I would speak to these elder victim, elderly victims, who put their entire retirement savings in these bogus investments. They literally lost everything, and it feels a lot like a boiler room. Like what Donald Trump was doing with this Save America pack was a boiler room, and exactly as a boiler room works. You get in all these funds and you start giving it out to the other co-conspirators in the boiler room. And Mark Meadows gets some, I mean, $5 million to the organizers of the January 6th event. Give me a break. I mean, that is just absurd. So uh, that is- As a prosecutor, in those cases as a prosecutor, what happened in them? Because I feel like that could be a good roadmap for what could happen here. Well, let me just put it this way. When- When you put an elderly victim on the stand to testify about how they got a call, you know, from someone who completely hoodwinked them and they lost everything, the case is basically over. It's just so compelling and it's so devastating to, for a jury. I mean, it's, you know, as a prosecutor, I just, I felt so terrible for these people and there's no way to get the money back. In this case, 
I think there's probably a way of getting some of the money back. First of all, that pack still has a lot of money in it. But I, I think what a prosecutor would do is they would go and they would start looking at all the donors and they would ask the donors, why did you give this money? What was the purpose for you to give this money? What did you understand about the solicitation for this money? And they're all going to say, oh, it was, you know, to pay for the legal fees so that we could challenge the election. And then you're going to show what the money was actually used for, that there was no legal defense fund that they were actually thinking they were putting the money in. And it's instead, you know, whereas in these boiler rooms, they bought fancy cars and fancy watches. No, instead, they're giving, you know, a million dollars out here and to to one crony and a million dollars out there to another crony. And you've got a pretty darn good fraud case right there. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's never held elected office, but he's still running for president. There's nothing in the United States Constitution that says that you have to go to Congress first and then Senate second or be a governor before you're elected to the presidency of the United States. A conversation with RFK Jr. on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask you just a, a basic legal question here. And forgive me, this is ignorant, but I'm my dad wouldn't let me go to law school. So I'm going to ask you here. A crime requires two things, right? A bad act and criminal intent. To your mind, has the committee shown both or either of these two things yet in the hearings that, that have occurred so far? Well, you know, the trick with with a criminal prosecution, which is very different from a civil lawsuit, is that you have to show that each individual either entered, in, entered into a conspiracy, most of these cases are conspiracy cases, to do something illegal and that they intended to do what they were doing. They don't necessarily have to know that what they were doing was illegal. They just have to intend to do the thing that is illegal. Um, And so that's a distinction. In Donald Trump's case, he would present what is often called an advice of counsel defense, where he would say, I had lawyers around me who were telling me that this was a legitimate pursuit to challenge the election. I had Rudy Giuliani, I had John Eastman. Everyone out there may know or think that what they were advising me was completely bogus, but I'm not a court, I'm not a judge, I'm not a legal expert, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know whether what they're telling me about the law is true or not. And so I was just operating based on their advice. So what you would have to show with Donald Trump in this case is that actually, in fact, he knew that what he was doing was illegal. Mm. So it's a little bit of a higher bar, for example, than the $250 million where you just have to know that what you were, you know, you have to know that you were trying to get money out of people through false, through misrepresentations and false statements. And so it's a higher bar for someone like Donald Trump in this case because of that potential advice of counsel defense. However, I believe quite clearly that he did know that it was illegal. And he did know that what he was doing was trying to overturn an election through illegal means. And the committee has done a very good job of distilling out the different aspects of the scheme and connecting Donald Trump to them, some better than others. But I point, and I think in Thursday's hearing on DOJ, Uh, We're taping this just before it, but on Thursday's hearing, we are going to hear one of the most compelling aspects of Donald Trump's knowledge, which is when he told top DOJ officials to, and there are notes of this and there's testimony about this in other congressional committees, 
that they just need to say that the election was corrupt and Trump and the Republican congressman will take care of the rest. When you combine that with his uh, recording telling Brad Raffensperger to just find 11,780 votes, one more than what he lost by, you add those two things plus the fact, you know, the additional evidence we've now heard about how he knew the fake electors were, the scheme was fake, how he knew um, that he was trying to coerce people to do things that were not illegal. And he knew other aspects that Mike Pence not certifying was, was illegal. He was told that at the end, right before January 6th, you put it all together and you have a very strong picture of Donald Trump's knowledge and his intent. And I wouldn't take any of these things individually and say, that is a smoking gun. But as is often the case, you know, in proving intent, you're using a mosaic of, of uh, statements and activity and evidence to prove intent. And I think they're there. I was going to say, um, we had Jamie Raskin on here a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying something similar. I asked him, is there a smoking gun? Is there something that shows intent by Donald Trump, you know, knowledge that what he was doing was illegal and intent to break the law? And he said, you know, this is more like a classic mob investigation, you know, where mob bosses don't write things down. They don't. They have lots of buffers, like you said, lawyers and other people, and they can do things with a wink and a nod. But he said, circumstantial evidence is evidence. And, you know, it'd be very tough to make a case against a mob boss without circumstantial evidence. And in this case, you could have a mosaic of such evidence. I mean, do you think of it that way as a sort of, you know, work as, you know, it seems that possibly Merrick Garland is operating in this way, starting with foot soldiers and making your way up a chain and, and creating a whole picture? Well, I was an organized crime prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and I actually prosecuted a mob boss. And I spend a lot of time investigating and prosecuting the mafia. And that description of Donald Trump, and I've said this many times before, is exactly right. And Michael Cohen testified to this in Congress in 2019. Donald Trump speaks in code, just like a mob boss does. But he makes his feelings known to those around him who understand what he's saying. And that is also the case by the way, with the rioters and with Trump supporters, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. You know, when Donald Trump says, stand back and stand by, the Proud Boys understood what he was saying. And then when he said, go to Washington, D.C., it's going to be wild, they understood that to be a request from Trump to go cause a ruckus and cause violence. Um, and we've seen it, you know, they showed so many of these uh, videos on in Tuesday's hearing of violent protesters or threatening protesters at the various election facilities. And then, of course, the most the worst examples that we have seen to date were in Tuesday's hearing with, you know, the Miss uh, Shay Ross, who has had her life ruined as a civil servant because Donald Trump called her out and he knows all he has to do is say a name and it's over. His supporters are violent, they are angry, and they will, as they did with the whistleblower in my investigation or Alexander Vindman, I mean, the pattern is very clear and that pattern matters and that is evidence that I would put in to a case. You raise another important point, Joe. As a former organized pro crime prosecutor who used RICO a lot, this case is ripe for a RICO charge. And in a RICO case, you are allowed to put in a lot of that kind of evidence to show that there is an enterprise. And it doesn't have to be a formal enterprise, you know, like the Genovese crime family, which I prosecuted. It can be what's called an enterprise in fact, which is just a group of people that have banded together to, with the intent of committing a number of different crimes. Um, and so there's a high bar to prove it, but the evidentiary benefits are significant to charging a RICO case. And I think this is exactly what RICO was created for. Donald Trump speaks in code. He doesn't have his handprints on anything. 
but he was the puppeteer directing everything that was going on. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about this and and why your depth of knowledge and experience here is is so vital. And you you brought up that witness interview this week, which I thought was so compelling and uh, reminds me of just why this is so well-produced and well-reasoned and well-argued because you have a mix of real factual pieces of evidence and human witness testimony. Um, we, we saw some reporting this week that the committee may start sharing some transcripts of these witness interviews with federal prosecutors next month. Should we read anything into that reporting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this was always expected. Um, I think at the end of the day, the Department of Justice has been too slow in moving ahead with the broader investigation of the coup attempt. Uh, and part of that is for good reason, because they have charged over 800 people arising out of the events of January 6, which is a monumental undertaking. But they've been too slow. And the committee has been pushing for the Department of Justice to move faster. And they ultimately then requested an, a tremendous amount of material from the committee. And frankly, part of the reason why they're requesting that is because they have obligations in some of these seditious conspiracy cases that they've already charged against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to turn over prior statements of other witnesses. And so part of the reason they want these transcripts is just to fulfill their own disclosure requirements. But part of the reason, I'm sure, is because they want to sort of short circuit having to do this entire investigation from scratch, and they should. They should be able to get access to what people have said, and they should be able to read these transcripts, identify the witnesses that they want to speak to again, and have a sense of what some other witnesses said. And they will ultimately get that. And I think what the committee just wanted to do was to say, hey, we've put a tremendous amount of work into building this investigation. And the crescendo of the investigation is really going to be these public hearings. We don't have the, the bandwidth resources to deal with you, DOJ, as it relates to all of these transcripts. And we want to save them for our big presentation at these hearings. After that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get them to you. You know, I don't know that they handled it as, as direct as that. Um, and I, don't, I think that the blood between the committee and DOJ is, you know, not entirely positive. But uh, ultimately, I think this, these, all these materials will go to the Department of Justice before it goes public. You know, you bring up the speed of, of the Justice Department investigation. And a large part of that is what you just said. And I think some of it is also the fact that this is a former president and that is an unprecedented thing to potentially bring charges against a, a former president. One of the things we're starting to hear is as we approach the midterms, which I want to talk to you about uh, in, in a personal way, but as we approach the midterms, that if Democrats do lose Congress, that President Biden may be impeached be just by the simple fact that President Trump was impeached. Do you worry that bringing charges against a president now could open the door to a more partisan Justice Department, quote unquote, witch hunts in the future, that we're just going into this period of such partisan gridlock that it's just going to be a way of our democracy going forward, that, that people are just going to try and charge whoever is the opposition party with crimes, uh, impeach them, all sorts of crazy stuff? I think we need to separate Congress and the Department of Justice in regards to that. I am very concerned that Congress has become so partisan that the concept of impeachment no longer carries such significant weight. And I agree with you that I think it's very likely if Republicans take over the House that they will concoct some reason to impeach uh, Joe Biden. It will pale in comparison to the reasons that Donald Trump was impeached, but I don't think they will care and they will feel like turnabout is fair play. The Department of Justice is an entirely different entity and it's an entirely different situation. I think Merrick Garland was hired as the attorney general, I believe, in large part because he had been a judge for 20 years 
and was completely apolitical as a judge. Um, and knowing that he was going to likely investigate the former president, I think it was a very intentional decision to choose someone who's apolitical. And Merrick Garland has said repeatedly, I mean, it's, it's like a, a broken record at this point, we will follow the facts and the evidence wherever they lead, and we will make whatever decisions we make based solely on the facts and the evidence. And if you are going to do that, which is exactly what you should do, politics don't enter into it. And I do not think that any of us should start to say or, or support or legitimize any accusations that whatever Merrick Garland decides to do is partisan. That will be the defense of Donald Trump unquestionably, but there is no evidence to support that. And Merrick Garland cannot be afraid of the fact that Donald Trump will come up with a bogus accusation and that that should not have an impact on whether he charges him. And I would also add that if he doesn't charge him, either because of that or because Trump is a former president, then that is a political decision. And so if you want to depoliticize the Department of Justice, you can't not charge him if the facts and the evidence are there simply because he was a former president. And then finally, I think there's a significant difference between what we're talking about here in terms of what Donald Trump did and even some of the potential crimes that were disclosed in the Mueller report. I am, it makes my skin crawl when people just call obstruction of justice process crimes as if it's a lesser crime. The reason people commit obstruction of justice is to hide other criminal wrongdoing and to prevent the system from working. It is incredibly serious. However, it is not a coup attempt trying to overturn a free and fair election and install yourself as a dictator. And the difference in the conduct, I think, is significant because if the facts are there, you cannot not charge Donald Trump. Mm. I'm glad you said all that. And I just want to uh, take note for a minute that uh, this week, uh, Rusty Bowers, the state rep in Arizona, testified that, you know, the pressure campaign on him to put forth or involve himself in fake electors, okay? One of the many points of pressure as a part of this whole insurrection. And then comes out, you know, right afterwards and says he would vote for Trump over Biden. And that everybody was sort of taken aback by this. Um, how could you have described from a personal point of view, the pressure on you politically, the pressure on you threats of violence against your neighbors and family over this whole thing, and then go and say, I'd vote for Trump anyway. It underscored to me what a dangerous world we're living in. I mean, I my takeaway from that was not that he actually believes that in his heart and soul, but that he knows that there is so much political pressure from his own party to get back in line. And that if Garland in this Department of Justice don't bring a prosecution against Trump, there's just never, you're never going to crack this cult of this party that will do exactly all the things that Emily is saying. They're going to continue on this path, this war path of zero, you know, zero sum game, uh, unless they see that there is some pain. <laughs> there is some- Accountability. Accountability. You would think Rusty Bowers would be the best of us for doing what he did. And yet, look, he'll continue down that path because of he's he's afraid. There's violence on the margins here. There's violence not even on the margins. <laughs> and I feel like Merrick Garland has to take that into account when he's doing his analysis. I'm sure there's a lot of I, I'd hate to be Merrick Garland, wouldn't you? <laughs> it's not an easy seat to be in. But right. to your point, Joe, I do think you, you raise a good point. Um, I, but I don't think it's all on DOJ. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm running for Congress is that it's got to be partially that we communicate truthful information to the wide swath of the public that is brainwashed 
by misinformation that comes from the right-wing ecosphere. It's not an easy, there's not, no easy solution to doing that because Fox News and many of the right-wing media sites are not interested in presenting facts and presenting anything that is contrary to Donald Trump's interest. I mean, the party is completely controlled by Donald Trump. And so you are right, if you, if you bite the head off of the snake, you know, the rest of the snake will die. And if Donald Trump ultimately goes to jail because he committed crimes, well, they've got to reassess. But, you know, it's not the only way. And we can't give up in trying to communicate the messages, the, the, the facts to the people who just are denying the facts. And it starts with the big lie. You know, we have to, and I think these hearings have done a really, really good job of laying out exactly how the big lie worked and continues to work. And I think there are people who are seeing this, who uh, have their minds changed. I don't know how many, but it is compelling and it is persuasive. And there still are a, a lot of people out there who are interested in understanding the truth. Well, to your point, I just want to point out that there was a poll that just came out, the Quinnipiac poll, saying that 64% of Americans say the attack was planned. And this number really struck me. 58% are following the committee's work. You know, And it kind of boils down to, yet again, that percent is that Trump base, You know, that Republican side. It's constantly there. But there's a majority of people that are paying attention and who understand. And if you're going to take a little bit of hope out of that, which I, I try to, there you are. So tell us then, let's, let's pivot to you're running for office. Correct. Tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit about why you decided that it was something you wanted to do and what it is you're hoping to achieve. Well, for a lot of the reasons we've been discussing, which is that I am petrified of the attacks, the consistent and pervasive attacks on our democracy by Donald Trump and the Republicans that he controls. And when I came back to New York after the first impeachment, I felt satisfied in the work that we had done to prove our case. And that even though many of the Republican senators who acknowledged that we proved our case ultimately voted to acquit Donald Trump in large part because they said there was an election in eight months and the people will decide, I took heart in that. And I thought, okay, let's see what the people do. And they did decide. And they chose Joe Biden over Donald Trump. But what has happened since then is beyond the pale of anything that I ever could have imagined. And frankly, what has happened since January 6th is worse than what happened in many respects in the, in the lead up to January 6th, which is the continued perpetuation of the big lie and laws changed around the country by Republican state legislatures to correct the obstacles they faced in 2020 to allow for them to steal the election in 2024. And given what has happened in the last two years, I, have to, I just feel compelled to get back in the arena to use the skills and experience that I both used and gained from the impeachment investigation to try to do something to preserve and protect our democracy. So that was the overriding reason why I thought about this is I, I am, I think that it is a, as I've been saying, it is a five alarm fire that too many Democrats are not paying close enough attention to. And so I want to get back in the front lines and as somebody who, you know, who has experience working in Congress and who has been effective working in Congress to get back there as a member and to use some of the creative strategies that we use both to protect our democracy, but also to protect our fundamental rights which are under greater attack than they ever have been, as we are looking next week for the first time, the Supreme Court rolling back uh, 
an individual constitutional right when they are very likely to overturn Roe v. Wade and take away a woman's right to choose. And so those are things that I just feel like are existential crises in our country that we haven't faced, perhaps in history, at least in the terms of the threats to democracy. And I really want to be on the front lines to fight those fights. Everything that you are raising alarm bells on and and all the reasons why you are throwing your hat into this ring are things we raise alarm bells about all the time here and are are the things that are deeply terrifying and literally keep us awake at night. And so we're so grateful for you sounding those alarm bells and for your sharing your brain with us here today on all of the things that we are all watching. It was really illuminating and we are so grateful for your time and your voice here. And we, we can't wait to keep following this race uh, and seeing where this takes you in the fall. Thank you. And, so. And I just want to go ahead. Yeah, I just want, I'm sorry. I just want to add also that uh, for people listening to this, um, if you've never laid eyes on Daniel Goldman, he's a young guy who has very fresh looking skin <laughs> and the, um, <laughs> There's a meme or a, a, a an idea going around on Twitter right now. People are are criticizing what they're calling the uh, geriatric oligarchy of our country. Too many old people in office, and uh, you know there's a kernel of truth of that. We need a new wave of young people with fresh ideas and lots of energy and the willingness to fight uh, the good fight coming into office. And so you fit that bill. And so I'm happy to see that uh, you know we've got a a solution to the to the geriatric oligarchy with us here on the uh, inside the hive. So thank you. And father, father of five, father I might five. add, which wow. if you can have five children and keep them alive, you have my vote. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's fun. It's fun to have uh, so many kids. And thank you guys for, for the kind words. It's been, it's been really been great to chat with you. And if anyone is more interested in the campaign, please go to dangoldman4ny.com. We are in the we're running in the new New York 10 district in the lower Manhattan and Brooklyn and very excited about hitting the trail for the next two months uh, before the primary on August 23rd. We will be watching. Thank you so much again, Dan. Thank you. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Alex Holder, uh, welcome to Inside the Hive. It's a big surprise and a welcome one to have you on the podcast this week. I know you're having a big day. You just went out to smoke a cigarette. You've been on like a total marathon this Thursday, the day of uh, the hearings. How are you feeling? I mean, on Monday, no one knew who I was. And I had 112 followers on Twitter, of which the majority of them were my family. And as of Right now, I can say that there are currently 21,100 followers and over a million views on, on one of the videos that we, uh, one of the clips we posted. So it is, yeah, a whirlwind. Yeah, well, that'll happen when uh, Jake Tapper starts uh, talking about you on CNN. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, let me just ask you straight off, were you paying attention to these hearings before all this happened? Have you been following it closely? Sure. I know I wouldn't say closely, but I was definitely paying attention to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, as just a a reader of everything that's been going on, and just to tell people listening here, if you haven't been paying attention to the news, Alex Holter made a documentary in which he had access to the Trump family for over six months before, during, and after January 6th. And this is why the January 6th committee has become very interested in your film, how did the committee learn about your documentary? It kind of popped out of the woodwork like two days ago for a lot of people. Like what, how did they get onto it? I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I've said this before, you know, there's probably a thousand, I have a thousand different theories about this. I mean, we were never hiding. Uh, we were always, we, we, no, we, we were filming uh, during campaign. Uh, in fact, on one particular occasion, uh, our DOP was, was filming Eric Trump and he was actually on the stage with him while he was giving his rally. And there was another occasion where 
he was actually on the stage, I think it was with a, a rally that, or, or a talk that Ivanka Trump was giving. And, uh, and I think he was blocking the CNN shot. And they were calling in to say, get that guy off the stage. So you know, we weren't <laughs> innocuous. We were, we, we, we were very present. Uh, so, uh, and then in terms of January 6th, uh, there's definitely, I mean, loads of, of people who had cameras who were able to be identified. And I think it's, uh, it, it was always inevitable, I felt, that there would be some sort of uh, reach out to us. So do you know whether there was something specific to your material that they learned about that prompted them to call you? I think that, that the idea of this guy who had access to the sitting president of the United States and his family during this period, and also having also been uh, and has material of the January 6th uh, uh, you know, event, you know, was, was obviously of interest. And so I, I imagine it, it, was all, it was all interesting to them, which is why they, that their, their subpoena included um, them asking for all the raw material. Right. And of the raw material, how many hours of straight interview do you have with the president himself? I mean, of the president, it's probably an hour, two hours or so, give or take. And um, these were all sit-down interviews, like um, in the White House or in different areas, Mar-a-Lago? Yeah. So I interviewed the president in the White House about a month after the election, and then in Mar-a-Lago about two months after he left office, and then in Bedminster uh, sort of a few months after that. And then uh, yeah, and, and others and also in other different locations as well. I'm sort of curious whether after these hearings and after seeing all the detail and the things that they're pursuing specifically, right, their interests, the areas of interests didn't make you reflect on what you heard them say and think, oh, this fits into that or this fits into that. Were you able to see your own material in a new light? So I'm certainly trying to, in a sense, because, I mean, everyone's asking me, you know, what are the committee interested in and, and what I'm looking for? And I don't know the answer to that question because, you know, you I'm only know what they asked you. Conversations. Exactly. So, uh, so I know I, I can guess as much as you know, the next best person. Uh, so, so I am sort of looking or thinking about the materials myself um, and trying to think sort of what might be of note but it's important to know that this uh, news has come out sort of coincidentally uh, during probably the biggest political investigation since Watergate and so there's definitely uh, yeah that narrative is surrounding this uh, this this project right now which is fine but there's more to the project than well let's talk about that because yeah like how did you know there's been some scuttlebutt about what was the understanding between you and the Trumps about, you know, <laughs> who would control the, the, the movie and so forth. And you've made clear in your statements that you have final cut and you were not going to be sharing this with them. It was your movie to make, correct? Absolutely. Yes. But when you came into it, you came in through, um, through a friend, Jason uh, Greenblatt, this Trump legal counsel, uh, who sort of helped get you access to this whole thing. Um, how did that come to pass? Like, can you walk me through that? Because that's a pretty extraordinary, um, you know, sort of lottery win in a way, like to suddenly be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. I mean, I think that I think you know, every now and then in life, that there are moments where you're at the right place at the right time. And I think that there's a I think one needs to work quite hard to get those uh, those opportunities. And, and then once you have them to obviously persevere and, and keep going. Uh, I, I was always upfront and straightforward and, and totally, um, you know, sort of uh, clear with everybody as to what my approach was and what I was doing, which is that I was, you know, telling a, a, a very fair and sort of uh, you know, a very fair account of the events that took place from when we started filming in, in September of, of 2020. Uh, and we and the film so there's sort of you know dual narratives there's the actual sort of election campaign and the election itself and, and the events that took place afterwards but there's also a sort of a fascinating i believe fascinating portrait of this family as well and the dynamics between the trump children and their father and them talking about their their life their experiences and their uh, their messages for the future and so it, you know it, it's multifaceted and uh, and I, I've always said this from the beginning of this whole project, and, and, and I still maybe it's slightly changed in, in, you know, because of what's been happening in the last sort of couple of days. But you know, what, what I think will happen is that the, these people they will vindicate positions. Everything you sort of thought you knew about them 
but haven't been able to necessarily see or, or or have proven to you, I think will come out. So if you love them, then I think you'll love them as much or even more. And if you hate them, you'll probably hate them you know, even more. But perhaps in light of what's been going on the last couple of days, there's definitely been a sense of that this is somewhat um, an attack on on on, you know, on the family, and and that is, I guess, sort of the nature of sort of politics and what's going on in America right now. But you know, I didn't have any, I, I did not come into this with any sort of preconceived notions. I know I came into this to see, uh, you know, to, to to find out who these people were, and to give them a chance to sort of answer my questions, and 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 that's it. And and you know, it, it, the beauty of documentary is that you don't know where the ending is going to be, and. Never in a million years did I think that the, the, that we would end up sort of documenting not just a historic election, but probably the most sort of historic and consequential uh, you know, election in American politics. And so, uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of how it how it sort of came about and where we right. got to. So, but you knew Jason Greenblatt how? Oh, I, I'd be working on another project about the uh, another sort of really easy subject: the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I had uh, been interviewing many people who had a connection in that particular um, matter. And uh, Jason had recently left the White House and he was now sort of a private citizen. And I wanted to sort of talk to him about his experiences at the Trump you know, administration and his views on the, on the subject. And we became quite friendly. And, and then we sort of discussed various different types of projects. And the end result is, uh, is this. And, you know, there's been some talk that they had. They were under some impression that this was going to be a real, uh, a kind uh, sort of legacy, you know, quote unquote, puff piece for them, uh, which you know, a lot of people that things begin that way. <laughs> you know, Michael Wolff was granted access at the beginning of the Trump administration as well, and wrote a scathing uh, portrait of them. But um, you know, uh, what was the sort of, you know, or or was it even discussed? Because it turns out a lot of people didn't even know it was being made. Yeah, I mean, I was saying before, I mean, the idea that, that a lot of people didn't know it was being made seems very unusual to me in the sense that like, we, we were never hiding. It, it's, you know, it is physically impossible for anybody to get into probably the most secure building in the world uh, in some sort of surreptitious manner. And it wasn't like we were one person. I mean, we probably, you know, we had massive uh, amounts of equipment and crews and, and, we, and we weren't just interviewing a, an administration official we were we were interviewing the president of the United States, so it, to me it seems slightly unusual that could possibly be the case uh, that people didn't know about us. And like I was saying before, during the campaign, uh, we had interactions with all sorts of different people from whether it's the White House or the actual campaign itself. Uh, so we were very upfront and you know and clear. Uh, we you know we were always straightforward and uh, with, with everybody uh, in terms of what what this was. I mean, it, it was. In some ways, it was what it was going to be whatever they would, you know, give us. I mean, you know, we, we, I always had the editorial control of this, but at the end of the day, I can't force people to sit down and talk to me. Sure. And you know, these these are these are real people who have their own minds and lots of advisors, and they sat down and I asked them questions, and they answered some, and they didn't answer others, and that was it. And, and then, in terms of long form documentary, we, we can contextualize the things that are being said to make sure that an audience understands what this is. I mean, I, I, the idea of making a, a film that is some sort of you know, puff piece is, is sort of, to me, just not something I'm at all interested in doing. And, and, uh, and that was never in any way a, uh, the approach. It just, and, and, and it shouldn't be. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Did you like Donald Trump when you met him? I, <laughs> it's funny. I, I've actually done about how many interviews today. That's the, the first I've heard that question. Look, my interactions with the Trump family were always, from a personal point of view, my, my own personal interaction with them was pleasant and professional. Uh, there was, you know, they would turn up on time. Uh, you know, interviews weren't cancelled. As to whether or not I agree with the things they said, I mean, that, that's a different, uh, different question. Uh, do I like Donald Trump? I, I, I'm not, I don't know the answer that Well, I mean, in the last few uh, hours, he hasn't been particularly, uh, well, his people have been saying things that aren't true. So I'm not liking that, Yeah, uh, which is uh, definitely the case. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, welcome to a very large club of people who they used to like <laughs> and who they no longer like.
what is the name of your documentary? Unprecedented. It's a three-part series. Yeah, and it's going to air on Discovery Plus. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You met with the committee this morning. That's correct. In a, in a closed-door session, they wanted to, uh, and it was under oath, I take it. So uh, it's slightly different uh, with uh, congressional uh, sort of testimony, from what I understand, where it's, it's called a, a transcribed interview. But the, the difference between the two is immaterial in that you, you can't say anything that isn't true. So it's, uh, you have to tell the truth to Congress. Yeah. How, how long did it last? Two hours and one minute. <laughs> two hours and one minute. And had they seen any of the footage yet other than what has been put out? I believe that they had uh, seen uh, the, uh, my understanding is that they've seen the footage. I don't know how much of it they've seen or whether they've seen all of it, but I believe that they've seen footage that we supplied. Yeah, yeah, the raw footage, like just the raw interview without editing. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we only supplied them with raw footage of uh, the interviews and of January sixth, which is as per the subpoena. Right. So the stuff we've been seeing on CNN has just been the edited version that's going to be in the film. Yes, yes. I mean, as you know, like uh, the documentary is much, uh, is much more that you know, the finished series is much more than just the sort of the raw material. It's, it's uh, of course, of yeah, course. You know, good. I get yeah, that. Yeah. I'm just saying to just to, for our listeners to separate uh, what the committee looked at was the raw, you know, the Absolutely. uncut, yes, uncut stuff. And uncut, yes. from your just to give me a general impression, was there a specific area of inquiry that that they focused on? I mean, there's been many different aspects of this investigation, different areas, you know, whether the, you know, the January 6th Capitol riots themselves and the incursion into the Capitol, um, interactions between, you know, the vice president and the president, interactions between the Department of Justice and the president and all these different, you know, you've, you've been paying attention, you know. Was there an area of inquiry that they were specifically interested in? No, I think they were interested in, in sort of the, all the materials that we had supplied. I'm sorry I'm being really vague. But I just really okay. don't. I, I, yeah, I just think that it's fair for them to sort of have the time to come to their own conclusion. To process it. Exactly. So I, my understanding is that on January 6th proper, that day, you were not in the Oval Office with the president. You were actually outside. Is that true? That's true. Yeah. Where were you? What were you filming on that day? We were filming the, uh, the rally at the Ellipse and then the uh, sort of, well, all day from the rally all the way through till the the events that took place outside the Capitol and, and, and then it's aftermath. Yeah. And so were, does that mean, were you with the family at the ellipse no. initially? No, you were not. You were in the crowd. We were in the, we were filming the speeches and the rally from the press pen. And then, uh, were, and, we, and we obviously had footage of the event itself. Yeah. And, and I mean, did, to be honest, I, I, we, we, you know, I had predicted that that was going to happen, uh, you know, the night before. And so we had some preparation. We had sort of planned what we would do if things sort of moved in that direction. And so I think we were, sort of, let's say, slightly more prepared. But, uh, but, but Why I did you think that? that, 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 that because you know, January 6th didn't happen in isolation. It was the, in some ways the sort of the horrific but inevitable conclusion to the events that had been taking place throughout you know, from from the start of the campaign all the way through until that day, uh, that there was clearly a, a, a tone of belligerence and of rhetoric that had um, been coming from uh, from that you know, from the Trump campaign, uh, and then obviously when you add to that the the, the former president uh, saying that the election was rigged and, and that there was uh, you know sort of serious issues with it, um, you know it, it's not. It's not surprising when you tell 75 million people that their vote didn't count that there would be a very significant reaction. And so, uh, yeah, to me, it was the it was a it was the, the culmination of, of that of, of this of this process. Well, not a, a lot of people were shocked that it happened. Mm. The, yeah. the actual. I mean, it was a shocking event. It was a shocking event, but but you had a sense that there was potential violence on the horizon because of the rhetoric you'd heard. And you'd been up close to it. I mean, you, you weren't just watching it on television like the rest of us. You were actually in there and seeing the, the key figures and their crowds. And is that, is that why you had a greater sense than maybe some of us that this was on the horizon? Sure. And, you know, when the president of the United States sits down in, in the, uh, 
West, sorry, in, in the White House and, and sort of tells me that there was no way that guy, uh, he's referring to President Biden, got 80 million votes. And then he starts saying how uh, we need uh, brave judges and starts talking about sort of the irregularities, his, the alleged irregularities in, in Georgia. And the reason for them are because um, the, the, the Republicans there are too scared to uh, you know, listen to him and, and what his position is as to how to resolve the, the fact that he lost in, in that state. It, you know, this plus the things that, that he's saying publicly at the time, you know, at rallies, I mean, it's just uh, like that if there wasn't a, uh, an event like that that took place on January 6th, it would have been actually, I would say, more surprising in a sense uh, because it, it, yeah, it just it, that's what happened because he you, uh, he put the pieces when, together. When and he lit, he, yeah, he 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 put the he had been putting the pieces together through his public rhetoric, and then he lit the fuse, and off it went. And, and I think that no, no, it, it is was there an intent? There is not for me to uh, to to. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Else, I mean, you, you it's not for you to judge, but you're a, a human man uh, sitting here with a good brain on your and, and, you know, on your shoulders, head on your shoulders. That's very sweet. <laughs> what uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where the, the facts are all coming out. We're all seeing what was going on behind the scenes and then we know what was going on in the outside. We know a lot, right? Um and the intent seems to be rather rather clear, right? Uh, he's told repeatedly by everybody in his entire administration that this is not true, right? Except for a couple of like wackadoodles that he dug out of nowhere and elevated, right? Whether Jeffrey Clark we're learning about today or John Eastman, this like crackpot constitutional fan fiction guy. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, if looking at it and having been as close to it as you have, Seeing that, okay, the family, I get, there's a soap opera in there between the, the children, the son, you know, the junior who wants so badly to please dad and they're, you know, the knucklehead sons and the, the princess daughter. I'm sorry, you can let me opine in this way. Um, but, you know, uh, but don't you look at all of this and just conclude something at this juncture after all you've taken in? I mean, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, my job is to sort of record events, record history, and allow people to come to their own conclusions. I'm not going to try and hide behind this and say that I don't think that uh, you know, January 6th was a tragic event. Of course it was. And, and, uh, and I do believe that there is a, some sort of responsibility, it has to be, uh, to the people that uh, said that the election was stolen, because obviously we all know that, you know, that that's not the case. Uh, as to sort of you know, intent and, and, and what I've seen and what we put in the documentary, I think it's fair for people to come to their own conclusions on on that front. I mean, I do believe that the you know the the, the series that certainly uh, it culminates with January six and but as to sort of whether or not uh, you know, President Trump wanted this to happen uh, or, or, or and and wanted these people to well certainly you know, people died. Uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but uh, but you know people will make up their own minds and, and people will see what we've done and, and will come to their, their conclusions and, and, and maybe they will be, maybe I'll share them and, or, or maybe I won't. But I think it's unfair for me to sort of say what I think it is because it will, you know, colour what we did. And also, like I said before, the, the film is, is more than the election and the, and the campaign and the journey. Sure. It's, it's also about the dynamics between the family and uh, not that I agree with the characteristics necessarily that you said, uh, but about the, the, the children, but it's certainly... You know, the knuckleheads and the princess. Into that. Yes. Well, I think people can well, again. We'll, we'll see that and, and make their own decisions and their mind up about their characters. But you know, it is a, a I think a, a portrait of who they are in a way that hasn't really been done before. Uh, so it was pretty, which is unique. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm a little like at I now you've got me interested, but I'm the main thing I'm interested in is your point of view. <laughs> yeah, but who am I? I mean, like I'm, the, I'm the point of view guy, of the right? documentary. Well, I think I think the point of the documentary is a, like I said, it's it's a chronicle port, the chronicle sort of uh, sequence of events that took place throughout the 2020 election, which culminates in January 6th, where we do draw the line between the rhetoric, the belligerence, uh, and and that event. So that's clear, and and that's and that, and that's a position, and, and I stand by that. In terms of 
intent in terms of whether uh, sort of a, what my opinion is on, on their characters uh, and whether or not they are sort of you know, are sorry or not sorry. I mean, all of that is, is you know, it's for an audience to sort of um, determine. And I think it would be unfair for me to sort of say, this is what you have to believe. Well, and, and you're, I get it. And I'll be excited to see the film um, unprecedented on Discovery Plus by filmmaker Alex Holder. Thank you for coming on Inside the Hive. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's our program this week. I'd like to thank our very special guests, Daniel Goldman and Alex Holder, for coming on Inside the Hive with my lovely co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Thank you so much to our producer and editor, Brett Fuchs. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. Come back again next week. We'll have more special on-the-news guests. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program, and we'll see you next week. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. From P-